0: Ukraine accuses Russia of committing atrocities near Kiev. Moscow calls for a U.N. investigation. The New York Times published photos of the Azov battalion in the town shortly after the exit of Russian forces. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow. Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: So, Ukraine has accused Russia of carrying out a deliberate massacre in. Bucha, a town near Kiev. Moscow denies the charges and calls for an investigation led by the U.N. The Ukraine Defense Ministry published several photos and videos alleging to show the aftermath of crimes committed by Russian forces. The Washington Post claims to have verified a video showing nine dead bodies, including a child. Well, before you respond, Mark, Having a video showing nine dead bodies, including a child, in a military conflict zone does not ipso facto atrocities make. Mark Sloboda.
1: Yeah, um, I I mean, in any conflict zone, right, any civilian deaths, collateral damage are – um, a tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, that shouldn't be ignored. Um, and they happen whether, you know, it is the United States, uh, rooting, uh, ISIS forces out of Fallujah and Raqqa or, uh, in uh, the current conflict going on today. But, uh, this seems to be substantively different, uh, both in, what happened on the ground and the way the narrative is being spun, uh, immediately, of course, before any investigation is conducted, uh, in, in the Western media. Um, and, uh, the events of this town are best looked at to start to determine what happened in terms of a timeline, And right, We can start all the way back on March 29th. Okay. Russian forces have announced they are withdrawing from Bucha as part of the shift of forces from around Kiev and Sumy uh, towards finishing uh, the cauldron around the bulk of Ukrainian regular military forces in East Ukraine. Russian military forces are withdrawing from Bucha. Also on that day, the Russian Ministry of Defense put out an official warning which they often do when they have intelligence that a false flag is about to be conducted and they said that the Ukrainian government had ordered its ultranationalist forces to produce staged videos uh purportedly showing crimes committed by Russian troops against civilians and they specifically uh, said incriminating Russian soldiers in mass killings robbery damage to social infrastructure and the like on March 31st, two days later, all Russian troops have withdrawn at that point, and the mayor of Bucha, Anatoly Fedorik, who had never been removed by the Russian government, declares that the city is liberated, that there are no Russian troops less in the city, and he actually refers to the city being liberated from Russian orcs.
0: What date was that? That is March 31st. Thank you. All right. So
1: already uh, five days ago. He does not mention in his video address anything. He's been in this city uh, up to that. He had never said anything about atrocities com- being committed. He had never uh, on this video address. He never said anything about civilians being killed by Russian forces. Nothing of the like. Then um, we see on April second, we get a notice. The Ukrainian national police uh, put out. Uh, in official communiques and on its own website that it had deployed its safari commando to Bucha to clear, to cleanse, uh, a better translation, the territory of saboteurs and Russian collaborators, i.e. Ukrainian civilians who had collaborated with Russia. Um, And later on the same day, suddenly, these claims of civilians uh particularly on one particular street where uh s- supposedly russian troops had killed everyone right within uh, at the edge basically of their driveways right right along the edge of the street a number of civilians um the reports uh shown um were shown to AP, who was driven down this street. Uh, Also, a uh, Reuters team, uh, the mayor of uh, Bucha, Anatoly Fedorik again, showed a Reuters team two corpses with white cloths tied around their arms. Uh, This is according to the Reuters report, which he said was what residents were forced to wear by fighters from Chechnya. Now, in this conflict, one of the ways that troops and civilians on other on each side identify themselves so they're not accidentally caught in uh friendly fire incidences in you know what is urban environments and tough terrain is by placing colored armbands around their arms in different theaters ukraine is represented by blue or yellow and in different theaters russians are represented by white and red now I don't know about being forced to wear them, but it is certainly a sign that these particular civilians were probably working with the Russian military forces. And then we have this report by the national police publicly put out by them that they're clearing the area of collaborators, cleansing the area of collaborators, those who had collaborated with orcs. I'm sure you see where this is going. (laughs) Then further – there was a video uploaded by, uh, a, uh, fighter for the Kiev regime forces. He's actually a Belarusian neo-Nazi, uh, who is fighting for, um, Kiev, uh, Sergei Karotke. Uh, he uploaded a video, uh, and in part of that video, there is a number of a kind of notorious, territorial defense battalion of Ukraine, the boatsman's boys, who are in Bucha. It's quite obvious where they are. And one of them says to another, asking about the terms of engagement, hey, if they don't have blue armbands, is it okay to shoot them? And the other one says, F yeah. (laughs) So if they're not wearing blue armbands, obviously they're okay to be shot. Uh, this video was later deleted, but of course the internet, uh, doesn't forget these things. So what it appears, uh, happened contrary to the narrative that's being spun is once Kiev regime forces moved into the area, they killed everyone who they believe collaborated with uh russia and then staged this incident it has to be remembered that russian military forces at this point control an area of ukraine uh not counting crimea or or the original areas of Donbass, um as Uh, the size of Great Britain. And there have been no other such reports of atrocities, genocide, massacres, of anything the like. But there is plenty of evidence and video evidence included of lots of humanitarian aid being delivered, um, uh, people being rescued, giving medical aid out of basements, particularly in Mariupol and so forth. Yes, collateral damage as a result of warfare, but nothing that would be this type of gratuitous war crimes. We're leaving, so on the last day here, will kill everybody, um, which is what we're supposed to believe. Uh, I don't believe that that is at all the case. And I think the evidence is adding up to show that. And that is why that the United Kingdom, which is the current president <laughs> of the UN Security Council, has now twice refused to convene a meeting of the UN Security Council demanded by Russia to discuss this provocation in Bucha. I think they're trying to get their story right.
2: Yeah, certainly. Why would you want an investigation into something when it could most likely turn out in a way that you wouldn't want it to turn out? Here's the other thing. I think was it how many people are they saying that was killed, Mark? Uh, some 400, 400,
1: supposedly. I mean, not that many have been, a, have been, you know, clearly videoed by uh, Western press or anything, but that's supposedly the 410, I
2: believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The th- here's the thing about it. What we're to believe is that, A, Russia's completely losing, which isn't, the battlefield doesn't show that, but what we're to believe is, it, it re- reminds me so much of the Syrian weapons of mass destruction complaint. Uh, uh, you know, our, uh, uh, you know uh, the, the what was it, Duma, I believe, where uh basically when a an army has nothing to gain from a particular act nothing nothing Uh, Militarily, nothing strategically. The only thing it could do is hurt them on an international public relations from an uh, international public relations perspective. And we're to believe that the Syrians then did a um, uh, the stupidest thing they could possibly do. And the only thing that would at that time draw the U.S. in, quote, um, formally, they were already there informally. And an investigation later on. I mean, and people later on demonstrated that the investigation was 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 crooked. But now we're to believe that the thing that the Russians could do to really screw themselves over, that they sat and scratched their head and said, well, things are going OK. What could we possibly do to really make ourselves look bad? That's it. So Cui Bono or Sonny Bono or something, Bono, bono I don't know, whatever. What are your thoughts on the old question when it comes to investigations of who
1: benefits? See, when you're asking questions like that, Garland, you're thinking of things like logic <laughs> and strategy and a professional military, right? Um, and, and that's your problem. And this was revealed by the mayor of Bucha, Anatoly Fedorik, when commenting on this. Uh, he hadn't commented on any atrocities before, and he had never been removed from office, but they suddenly found them uh, late on April 2nd. And he said that you know the Russian troops are orcs, and that explains it. They're monsters. They're all monsters. That's why they would do this. It has nothing to do with logic and strategy. This is the logic that has to be presented, a, a complete demonization, um, despite the fact that we have plenty of reports from the Ukrainian media in Kiev about their own uh, intelligence forces, the SBU, and far-right far right battalions, summarily executing officials on the street, including the, one of their first peace negotiators mm-hmm. and a former deputy director of the SBU for being traitors. They literally shot them down on the street. One, it, w- Once there was plenty of witnesses, it was reported and actually extolled. And the other one, video evidence was presented. It was never contested by, I mean, it, it clearly happened. Uh, the Ukrainian press reported about it in good terms. They were traitors. They deserve to be shot the way they were in the street. And the Western media never reported that it happened because it doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to sell about this regime. And, you know, uh, suddenly, you know, after Russian forces withdrew from Bucha and the Ukrainian police announced a cleansing operation against collaborators, then suddenly several days later, uh, these uh, large number of dead civilians shows up. It stinks, I think. I, I have not seen I mean we've heard about you know the snake Island uh, martyrdom hoax. we've heard about the ghost of Kiev that shot down a thousand planes. we've heard about the fake bombings of Babayar of Chernobyl, of this maternity hospital hoax uh, that has been exposed from the woman herself was in the video uh, and now we have this. Um, and it is all really cynical disinformation, but this is the first time that it appears likely that it was the regime in Kiev killing its own citizens who it views as traitors or who its forces on the streets of Bucha view as traitors, and then trying to present it as if it, uh, was some atrocity by Russia. It is, it is the most cynical and evil thing, and when you see that, uh, Western media uncritically just repeating this stenography-wise, and Western governments immediately leaping on it. The amount of cynicism involved is stunning.
0: We have just about 45 seconds. I also wonder if, in fact, Russia were involved in this atrocity, why would, uh, I guess it was Sergei Lavrov, demand a twice a U.N. investigation by the Security Council into this. So I'm going to rob the bank. Then I'm going to beg the FBI to please come in and investigate who robbed the bank. That to me doesn't make sense. We got about 30 seconds.
1: Uh, Because it works. That's why, because (laughs) Lavrov is a Russian – I mean that is the only logical explanation. You could say it's some attempt at distraction or something like that. But clearly it points to – I mean the warnings beforehand by the Russian Ministry of Defense this afterwards that Russia is the one who has been trying to uh, draw attention to it and wants an actual – impartial UN investigation uh, not something that is continued to be some stage theater arranged by uh, Kiev's own uh, military and police forces.
0: Mark Shloboda as always thank you so much for your time. Greatly greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Germany fighting inflation, too. German retailers expected to raise prices today by 20 to 50 percent. The Biden economy is not the only broken economy in the world. Germany's inflation is out of this world as well. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J. No, as always, KJ. Welcome back. Thank you.
3: Pleasure to be with you.
0: So just days after Germany reported the highest inflation in a generation, with February headline CPI soaring at 7.6 percent annual pace, giving locals a distinctly unpleasant déjà vu feeling even before the Russian military intervention in Ukraine broke what few supply chains remained and sent prices even higher, Germany will take one step toward a return of the dreaded Weimar hyperinflation when, according to the German Retail Association, consumers should prepare for another wave of price hikes for everyday goods and groceries, with Reuters reporting that prices at German retail chains will explode between 20 to 50 percent. KJ, this will only add to the pressure on Olaf Scholz to break away from following Joe Biden down this rabbit hole, your thoughts kJ no
3: absolutely, and we 'll see if he 's able to you know chart an independent path. clearly what he 's doing is damaging Germany, damaging the German economy uh, he 's literally conscripting the wallets of the German consumer in order to fight uh, joe biden 's you know uh, contestation with russia but I think these specific uh, indices come out of um, some reports from Aldi, Albrecht Discounters. It's a large European, European food retail chain. It has 10,000 stores in 20 countries, including in the U.S. They own traders, Trader Joe's. And they have said that they expect a 20 to 50% increase in um, most goods, uh, for example, 30% planned for butter. Uh, And uh, 94 percent of food retailers in Germany anticipate increasing their prices. This is very, very bad news for an economy uh, globally that is already deeply impacted.
2: You know, KJ, I have a a feeling that pretty soon the the people in in, uh, Germany are going to be saying about Olaf Scholz, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. I think that's going to be, that's going to be, that's what they're going to be saying there. They're going to be quoting uh, Quoting Joe Joe Biden. Biden. But here are my thoughts. You know, the U.S., uh, and as we talked about it, you know, this is part of the plan. They're going to do away with Russia first, and then, boom, they're going for China. I'm starting to feel they ain't getting past this uh, particular hurdle in that the biggest problem for an empire or any country is internal uprisings. And when countries run, history tells us when people run out of bread, it's off with the leader's head. Now, hopefully we're talking about that metaphorically now, but in the past, uh, as we know, it wasn't always metaphorically in um, in Europe. But what are your thoughts about my, and i believe believed this for a while, you know, and I've said this, when, when this first started, everybody was like, yes, NATO's really coming together. But I'm like, man, when they start seeing the price of food and stuff, they're going to fall apart and there will be regime change from one end of Europe to the other and maybe even here, too. And they're going to go for people who don't want um, military and economic confrontation. Your thoughts?
3: I think you're right on that. I mean, we had anticipated this blowback in the sense that any time you le- levy sanctions, uh, you also sanction yourself to some extent. Sanctions are an act of war, and there's no cost-free way of engaging in sanctions war. So I think that it's very possible that there will be significant blowback. I think we're already seeing that with hungary Viktor orban has coasted to uh, a win uh, on the grounds that you know he would steer a somewhat more you know kind of multilateral approach to the world rather than simply going along with the u.s approach which other candidates had uh you know uh, indicated so i think yes there's ample possibility that the blowback could increase will this result in internal uprising that remains to be seen. But as you point out, you know, bread, bread is important. Food is important. And history gives us a very, very clear example of how critical uh, these things are.
0: And you're talking about bread. You mentioned butter. Uh, wheat and animal feed are currently the number one price drivers for agriculture. And so we're as we look at the Prices increasing and the areas in which they are increasing, feed for animals is scarce. Fewer pigs, cattle, and especially chickens are being raised. And we know that Russia is the largest supplier of grain to the world. We know that grain also comes out of Ukraine. So I don't understand how... American foreign policy, so-called experts, could have expected any other result from this other than what we find ourselves experiencing?
3: I, I think there was quite a lot of wishful thinking and probably an equal amount of willful ignorance. But yes, absolutely, Russia is incredibly important to the food supply chain, not simply grain and animal feed, but also fertilizer, fertilizer not to mention what we've already mentioned in terms of metals, inert gases, and fuel. These are critical pieces of the global economy, and you cannot tamper with that without creating massive ripple effects, which is what we're seeing. So did the foreign policy experts think this through? It's possible, uh, are they uh, simply, you know, um, indifferent? That's also possible. But I also note that this was done very, very rapidly. And I think, uh, you know... And recklessly. It, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, correct.
2: Well, and, and 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 I think it was, and, and from the thing, the, from what I'm seeing, to be quite frank, it appears to me that they didn't think it through. Because I mean, immediately after instituting the sanctions, and oil prices went up, there, um, the U.S. is running, sending their diplomats around the world to try to get oil from Iran or Venezuela or wherever they can. It, it just seems uh, that. Um, th- the China, Iran, India, Russia, that the other countries that are forming a new kind of world order block did think it through. It seems to me that they had a very concrete plan and they are in the process of instituting a plan. When I see what's happening with the use of currencies, etc. I don't think that this. They waited until after this happened to begin this process. We see that the Russian mirror card was um, instituted a year, a year ago. Some of the things that we see makes it appear as though there was a re, there was a world order forming, and these things simply provided the the the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, which I would argue they knew was coming sooner or later anyway. Your thoughts?
3: I, I think you're right on that. I certainly, I think the Russians, possibly the Chinese, other countries, other BRICS countries, anticipated. And I think they've been anticipating this for a long time, that the U.S. global system, the U.N.'s financial system is no longer reliable and that they have to create alternative channels and systems. We saw that rapidly implemented uh, after Russia was sanctioned. We're also starting to see a global split in financial systems and a a shift towards de-dollarization in general. Some of these swaps had been set up already. China has set up swaps, uh, currency swaps, to bypass the dollar. It's been doing this for years right now. So it's just a matter of pulling the trigger as necessary. So certainly we can see that they didn't think it through there's much more deeper strategic long-term thinking going on in the global south certainly in China and Russia and I think the best example of this is the Russian riposte to the uh, you know to you know to the the gas sanctions when they requested not simply that they be reimbursed in rubles but they set up a system whereby not simply gas but all commodities could be reimbursed in rubles while still giving some sort of technical cover to the EU to pretend to be engaging in some sort of sanctions.
0: And to your point KJ knowing how or having having some level of understanding of The level of planning, particularly contingency planning, that the Chinese government engages in, understanding the level of planning, out-year planning that the Russian government engages in, I think you're absolutely right. They had contingency plans that they didn't have to go too far in the library to find in order to deal – to counter – moves uh, that are being made. And so to me, this is the difference between the fomenters of the crisis, a la the United States, versus the victims of it. And Joe Biden's point about this is Putin's price hike, as he was talking about early on when the gas prices started to go up. Uh, I don't know how many people are, are, are finding comfort in, in, that, in that statement anymore.
3: I don't think anybody's finding comfort in that statement. I mean, you go to the gas station, you go to the grocery store. Nobody is thinking that this is Putin's price hike. It is a Joe Biden's price hike, and it you know it boils down once again to those magical words: "It's the economy, stupid," and the executive is responsible, uh, you know, for the uh, you know for how the economy uh, is run or isn't run. So I think it's not. It's not working. It's not going to work. Uh, Certainly, there are ways to de-escalate this conflict that the U.S. is not engaging in. Uh, It could start by coming to the table and encouraging Ukraine to come to the table in a good faith effort. But that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. And rather, the U.S. is trying to pile on weapons and sanctions. Once again, very, very bad thinking. But it's Speaks to the tactical maneuvers that are going on, poorly thought through, but still tactical, as opposed to the long-term thinking and the strategic planning that the Chinese and Russian governments are doing. You know,
2: uh, 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 the other other thing is from a you know from a, um, a, a security, a geopolitical sh- security uh, perspective, the U.S. has been very hawkish with Russia. You know, we're not going to back down. We're going to keep coming. I do believe that, and I've already heard some things starting to come out of some of the mouths of some of the European leaders. You know, as they say, this too shall pass. The time will come when the Ukrainian military operation is, for all intents and purposes, over. At that point, I believe that the leaders of Europe are going to kind of, to some extent, break from the U.S., and they're going to be prepared to— Do some kind of a written agreement with the Russians that makes some concessions. Maybe they pull back some of their military infrastructure from the border and Russia says, well, we'll pull back a little bit. But in the past, they weren't honest actors and they just said, we'll keep doing whatever we want and you have no say. But I think they're taking such a political hit. They're seeing that Russia is hesitant to use military force, but will if they feel threatened enough. I think we're going to see some honest discussions In Europe and a real um, uh, uh, move towards a a realistic um, security agreement with Russia on their border?
3: I think that's very possible. Certainly, I think in the capitals of Western Europe, I think that will be the case. Uh, I think Eastern Europe will have, you know. Parties in different camps, although Hungary has already shown itself to be more accommodating.
2: I I, I hate to cut it, but I'll I'll ask you one one thing about that. Here's where they're going to have their problems. Uh, Poland. Poland is not a wealthy country. They're going to be loaded with refugees and it's going to be hard to pay for those refugees, and the people in a country with refugees always get angry for one reason or other and say, why are the refugees being treated better than the people? So Eastern Europe, while they are hawkish Russian haters, they're going to have significant uh, refugee problems that they're not going to be able to deal with. Sorry about that, but I thought that was important to throw it in there. Keep going.
3: Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And there are countries that will be even more uh, burdened than Poland, which still is a fairly large economy. So, yes, I think there will be a, a time when uh, the Europe will come around, either that or it will fragment. It will fragment even more than it has already fragmented. And then the neocons, uh, the hawkish neocons who currently are trying to drive uh, Europe's policy – Will I think have to face the music, or they will try and escalate even further, and that would be a tragedy beyond imagining.
0: I know we did not send this to you, but I'm sure you're quite aware of the Pentagon having produced its latest national defense strategy, and listing China as the uh, number one enemy uh, or target of the United States, and. Uh, I keep asking this question because, to me, this, this makes absolutely no sense. China is, is a competitor from an economic perspective, uh, has not presented itself as a military threat, but the United States seems to only be able to find military solutions to economic problems.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, when you have a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. China is no in no sense. Is it any kind of threat to the United States, except in the sense that it's outcompeting the U.S. on the economic uh, front? And that is by doing it in ways that the U.S. says would lead immediately to China's demise. So something's wrong there. But fundamentally, it poses an ideological threat. It's the threat of a good example, it's the threat of an alternative system, which the mm-hmm. neocons, the ruling elite, cannot tolerate. And that's why they still have their sights focused on China.
2: I think the problem is they were really pushing for their, um, their coalition, and they were going to drag NATO into Asia. And I think NATO is losing its taste for confrontation, and it ain't going to be so easy to drag NATO into Asia as it was before. KJ.
3: I agree with you. And they're also trying to constitute the Quad as another uh, Asian NATO. And that is also uh, falling apart. You know, the three-legged dog is not able to run, hunt, or threaten because of India's defection from the Quad.
0: And it seems as though right now that President Putin is playing his cards, playing his cards well, and particularly as it relates to the stability of Na- or instability of NATO.
3: I think it's... Playing his cards close to the chest, but yes, whatever cards he has, he seems to be playing very well. So we have to be very, Very, um, you know, discerning about uh, statements from the MSM that seem to indicate otherwise.
0: Because we have just about a minute left. One of the things that was being stated early on in the game by President Biden was, "You got to shut down Nord Stream two because you can't allow Russia to dominate the to use natural gas and oil as a political weapon." And that's exactly what the United States is doing. Thirty seconds.
3: Absolutely. The U.S. is doing that and not only doing not only doing that, but doing that to the detriment of the EU and Germany. And they are wise to that. And the leaders, despite how much they would like to pay lip service to the United States, are still accountable to their own people.
0: K.J. No, as always, thank you so much for your time. You gave us extra time today. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back. Mideast east Discourse reports Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan saved from a U.S.-planned regime change. The Prime Minister of Pakistan will remain in office after the no-confidence motion to be voted on was rejected. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst, producer, and media consultant based in uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith. Welcome back.
4: Amazing to be with you guys.
0: So President Arif Alvi has dissolved the National Assembly in Pakistan, after the deputy speaker suspended the session and rejected the no-confidence motion on grounds of it being part of a foreign conspiracy, and Khan has asked his nation to prepare for elections. Khan has claimed that the U.S. threatened him and is seeking to oust him from office as he faced a no-confidence vote in the Pakistan National Assembly. Yesterday, he told the crowd at a rally in his support that a foreign country— was conspiring against him and his political opponents working at its behest. He claimed foreign funds in the hands of his political enemies were trying to topple his government to take control of the foreign policy of Pakistan. And then he went on to mention the name of Donald Liu, the top American official dealing with South Asia in the State Department, as the person involved in the foreign conspiracy to topple his government. Laith Maroof, this is a very serious uh, allegation levied by Prime Minister of Pakistan Imran Khan
4: oh yeah and it seems like it this story has been developing very rapidly and it is indicating uh, you know the tectonic shifts that we see globally in terms of international power balances Um, your listeners must remember that the Prime Minister of Pakistan that we're talking about was in Russia on the first day of uh, the launch of operations in Ukraine. He had a front row seat to uh, this action and he refused to condemn the invasion of Ukraine um, and uh, challenged the West saying that their condemnation of his uh, or their pressures on him to condemn Russia. Uh, is a tantamount to the old days of slavery uh, when people in Asia and Africa didn't have a say in international affairs. Um, So to see how fast it developed in terms of first the opposition parties and some of the members of the party of uh, Umran Khan being... uh, you know, strong-armed into attempting a, what clearly could have been a coup in terms of a motion of uh, non-confidence and uh, collapse of the government. And the response that of Amran Khan and the president uh, with him and the Speaker of the House, uh, all of them rejecting this motion, shutting down the parliament and now calling for an election within 90 days. Um, it, it's clear that... Uh, the move that the Americans attempted has failed.
2: Let me ask you this. I, I've always felt like Pakistan sits at a very interesting spot ge- geograf- you know, geographically where it's kind of a gateway, you know, between the Middle East and India, between the Middle East and, and, and Eurasia. It's kind of, ne- in a way, neither fish nor fowl. In your opinion, how it's geographically, geostrategically, how important, and, and of course it is in fact a um, a uh, nuclear power, how important is Pakistan to, you know, the, the U.S. empire and, and how big a a, a loss is, is it for them having Pakistan clearly, you know, chosen not to side with them on this Ukraine thing?
4: I mean, it's a huge loss uh, because, you know, originally the United States was counting on um, uh, both India and Pakistan to balance China and uh, Iran in the Asian uh, battlefield. And as we see not only did Pakistan refuse to condemn, but also India is refusing to condemn. So what country of of actual weight uh, does the United States have uh, on its side in Asia? It seems like none and so we are seeing uh, you know China reapproaching India to try to solve all their border disputes uh, uh, we see right now. China uh, approaching uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan to um, connect the road and belt initiative through Afghanistan. And uh, you know, many of your listeners may not know this, but obviously Pakistan is situated between Iran and India, right in between, smack middle. And on the other side of the Arabian Sea is Oman. So. Of course, Pakistan has had this uh, status of being an intermediary between cultures uh, for uh, centuries. And, um, you know, prior to Pakistan falling completely in line with American uh, dictates uh, in the early 80s, you know, this was a country that was uh, crucial in development of independent military um, you know, technology in in emerging countries. This uh, the nuclear program of Pakistan was jointly developed with uh, North Korea and Iran and Syria. And this is now we see finally if Pakistan actually exits American sphere of influence, that may be a the first Muslim state that has a nuclear weapon that is not an American lackey.
0: It's interesting understanding the history and the and the tensions between India and Pakistan that the two of them are on the same side of this issue. There's a, a piece, U.S. coup failure in Pakistan's a sign of empire's days as hegemon are over. An American political analyst and journalist says the U.S. coup failure against the government of Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan is a sign that empire's days as hegemon are over. Your thoughts about Pakistan and India being on the same side of this issue And then also adding to that, the Pentagon in its national defense strategy has listed China as the as America's number one enemy. And so to me, with that, then with that declaration, that to me will draw in India, draw in Pakistan and other countries into tensions and future conflicts with the United States.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, India. No matter how much uh, the United States courted India, um, specifically with Hindu nationalism and uh, President Modi, um, you know, it's backfiring now because they created similarly in Brazil. I mean, Bolsonaro is was a darling of the American Empire, and here he is. You know, he, he's a even a Nazi supporter, Bolsonaro, and he's standing against. The United States uh, in on the side of Russia. So what does this mean? On the one hand, all this attempt to create these strongmen uh, that can, you know, back nationalism, even in in Europe, uh, Orbán in Hungary. This is another uh, darling of of the empire uh, standing against this position because they created these strongmen um, and filled their heads to the point where they think, especially at this moment, where they see Russia and China. And Iran and others uh, taking uh, positions that are uh, drastic—they're, uh, you know, finding their own courage to do the same. I think whatever is happening in Asia in terms of these tectonic shifts in Pakistan, in India, uh, you know, this is actually what's going to set the next century—the uh, events uh, that are happening in Asia around. Uh, this, uh, if, if all these problems get solved between Pakistan, India, and China, uh, is game over for the Western imperial order. Uh, you know, this is why you see them also right now trying to um, instigate some instability in the Central Asian countries. You know, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and uh, Turkmenistan, and, and this will continue. But I think. As we see the United States uh, failing even in a country that it controlled for decades, like Pakistan, to have its uh, way, I think we should uh, then expect it not to be able to do that in countries that are completely out of its sphere of influence.
2: Press TV has an article, U.S. coup failure in Pakistan, a sign that empire's days as hegemon are over. Let me give you a couple of uh, some countries. Venezuela won Guaido. Um, the U.S. has been trying to push regime change there. Not much luck. Bolivia, they actually were able to get regime change. Now, the people took the country back and the um, puppet Janine Añez that they put in charge is now on trial. Uh, Kazakhstan. That was thwarted by Russia recently. Belarus, they attempted to overthrow the government, thwarted by Russia. Syria, they attempted to overthrow the government, thwarted by Russia. Number one, I see why they're so mad at Russia. But but number two, your thoughts, it seems like not just today, if you look at the last few years, you can see the empire's ability to overthrow governments and control governments have been spiraling down. And when you start looking at those words, you, you start seeing that Russia was a big part of using its diplomatic force mostly to thwart those and eventually it got to the point where they used military force. Your thoughts on the whole thing?
4: Yes, and all of this started of course in Libya and, and we must remember the comments of President Putin. He said that if he was president at the time of Russia, at the time he wasn't, uh, President David at the time was in power, that uh, the... The killing of uh, Gaddafi and the invasion of NATO, of Libya, wouldn't have happened. So, I think we're at a stage now that uh, the United States and its uh, lackeys, its vessels in Europe, have uh, no choice but either to accept a multipolar world or go to a nuclear holocaust for all of humanity. And I am hoping, you know, the people in the United States... People uh, living in uh, Europe and Canada and such will realize where their uh, elite are dragging them and taking them. This is not going to be uh, good for anybody, whatever the, the Americans and the West are trying to do. We can see now the uh, inflation in Europe uh, reaching historical uh, the levels, the prices of uh you know, grocery in most markets in Germany are now between 40 to 100 percent higher, uh, and the uh, Russia is trying to mitigate this specifically to peoples in Africa and Asia and Latin America, where it is right now selling, uh, offering to sell wheat and uh, other essentials like cooking oils at below market prices, at pre-war uh, uh, prices, uh, and only for those because the Europeans are not understanding, um, you know, uh, how to behave in a way that is uh, equitable to all of humanity. If they want to uh, sanction Russia, they will be starving. But the rest of us, luckily, because Russia is thinking about the rest of humanity, we will not starve.
0: Uh, quickly, because we just have about a minute and a half, and we're going to be talking about the inflation in Europe in, an- in another segment. But with that, it seems as though that's a added pressure that the Biden administration was not anticipating. And with these parliamentary style governments in the EU, I think it's going to be harder and harder over time for Biden to hold his coalition together.
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, we just had this election in Hungary. And, and, of course, the Americans and the Europeans were hoping to topple Orban and bring in somebody that will be pro NATO invasion or or war strategy, and that uh, w- what just happened as an indicator it shows that he won more seats in and you know throughout his history. So we should be expecting in the rest of Europe as the prices start going up, as people start not able to heat their homes or uh, cool their homes as the summer starts right now. They, you know, more and more demonstrations will begin to develop in Europe. And as elections roll out, that these states will be destabilized and they will have nobody to blame but themselves. And uh, I think, um, you know, we should be all hoping at least that uh, these these destabilizations that will happen in Europe will lead to uh, more sovereign uh, leaders in these countries that are not uh, lackeys of the United States.
0: Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
4: You have a great evening.
0: You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Thank you, Wilmer. According to Common Dreams, win for workers across America, Amazon union victory inspires progressives. For everyone in the labor movement, it's time to dramatically rethink what we imagine as possible, said one organizer. How significant of a victory is this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former Amazon employee and current Amazon union organizer and one of the leaders of the Staten Island movement, Chris Smalls. Chris, welcome back.
5: Hey, thank you for having
0: me. So congratulations on your victory. Explain to the audience what this means for labor going forward.
5: Uh, This is monumental, you know, um, catalyst of a revolution for Amazon workers, you know, just like uh, we've been seeing with the Starbucks workers. We're hoping what we've done in New York is going to spread across the country, you know, and uh, it, it seems like that's going to be the case. You know, we've got workers reaching out. Um, from different parts of the country, even different parts of the world, that want to start unionizing their facilities. So it's been, you know, great to share this experience with everybody.
2: You know, do you feel like this is part, we've seen this um, with Starbucks, and do you feel like this is part of a pushback against basically this unfair system that we have to workers, Uh, like a, a bigger kind of pushback starting to happen?
5: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. You know, I think workers are realizing their values a lot more um and workers are tired of being used and abused you know the pandemic really woke everybody up um the labor movement been on the microscope along with the other movements uh like so- social justice and environmental i think uh, people are starting to realize that quitting your job just puts you in another fire from another so uh unionizing is a way to improve your quality of life and you know once again that's what the alu is Amazon, they begin just trying to represent up
0: here in New York. Uh, Talk about what it is that you have actually won in terms of, I think, job security, in terms of health care and and, and other benefits. And in the context of Jeff, Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, he's worth about $190 billion Yes, folks. Billion with a B. He's worth one hundred and almost ninety billion dollars. And here are the employees of his company still struggling for health care, still struggling for job security. Talk about what you won, Chris Smalls.
5: Well, we won the right to negotiate. Um, that's what uh, union can provide. Uh, union can provide collective bargaining. And, you know, we represent right now, eighty three hundred workers that I have the right to collective a bargain with the company. Uh, what we're going to push for and fight for is job security, $30 an hour, uh, better medical leave options, longer breaks, um, you know, becoming a shareholder again, uh, getting monthly bonuses for productivity and attendance, um, free college for yourself and your children and a pension, you know, some of the things that Amazon does not provide, you know, the union can absolutely provide and Amazon can absolutely afford it. So we're hoping that, uh, Our first contract will include some of these things in the short term.
2: Um, You know, how does it feel from when you started, you know, and, I mean, what you've been, particularly as a person, what they put you through, to go from where you started to on this long road to here? You know, how does this feel as as a victory?
5: Um, You know, it's like the Cinderella story. You know, they fired me two years ago, um, you know, and I'm now the president of the union that's uh, at, at the same facility where I was terminated. So it's uh, this is uh, my justice, this is uh, the people's justice as well, and it feels great, it feels amazing to um, so once again be able to take on Amazon and beat them, you know, even though we had all the odds stacked against us, we were able to prevail. So, um, you know, words can't really express, you know, I'm still trying to get a hold of it, you know, even saying the words, you know, I unionized Amazon, uh, it doesn't sound real, but, you know, uh, we were able to do it, and... Not just do it, but overwhelmingly beat them, so um we're we're happy and we're ecstatic, but I know the the fight really just begun, and we're all prepared for that as well.
0: Talk about this in the larger national context in which you mentioned in the open, particularly as we look at uh, what happened in Alabama, a federal labor official threw out the results, and now I believe that a court has now ruled that the result may be set aside, but a new election can be held. Talk about that quickly, and what type of management intimidation did you all face?
5: Okay, I think— uh, they are they they so they had their second election already um I don't think they're having a third one, but um oh. i don't I think they're challenged they're they're in the process of challenging uh the four hundred and fifty uh ballots and they have a court hearing coming up um so I guess we just have to wait until the results come out from that'm okay. not too sure what's going on with their campaign. you know I have no uh real involvement with that one um that's a different union but uh, you know, I'm hoping, which that they're successful because their success is absolutely going to help, um, you know, the cause of all Amazon workers trying to unionize.
2: Have you been hearing from any other, like, groups, companies outside of Amazon, other companies, uh, people trying to talk to you, trying to, like, say how did you do it or trying to get get help or um, recommendations on um, organizing other others?
5: Um, yeah, you know, I, I definitely uh, have had a chance to skim through some emails that, you know, people want to, uh, you know, have a meeting and, you know, get some advice from us and meet with the organizers uh, and pick everybody's brain uh, so they can begin their own efforts. So uh, we just got to figure out scheduling, you know, right now everything's. But uh, once things calm down, we definitely want to put together like a national call where we can help people out on a national level, um, you know, put together some trainings for them to get started, you know, wherever they may be. Uh, in the
0: country and I know your your time is short. last question. I wanna just get back to uh get any insight into the type of management intimidation that you all had to overcome.
5: Well, Amazon spent millions of dollars trying to stop us. They had captive audiences every single day uh It was putting these people in classes every twenty minutes for the last several months. you know, so imagine going to work every day and being thrown into a class you know four times a week about anti you know, union propaganda. And, you know, besides that, they had the million dollar union buses walking around the building 24 7 about a whole army of them from different parts of the country. And, you know, they spread propaganda, spread lies about me. They, you know, made up things. They got us arrested. I was arrested a few weeks ago, along with, uh, two other organizers. Um, that's just the name of a few of the things they've done. Um, throughout the course of the campaign.
0: Chris Smalls, current Amazon Union organizer for the Staten Island Movement. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your success. Please keep us posted. We look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Hope as Yemen ceasefire begins. First fuel ship arrives in Hodeidah port. On Saturday evening, the Ramadan ceasefire began in Yemen with signs of relative success. With years since the last truce, many Yemenis have high hopes that they'll get a break from conflict. But the ugly history of the war has many also fearing it won't last. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's uh, host of the podcast, The Left is Dead. You can find that at theleftisdead.com. James Carey, as always, James, welcome back.
6: Always good to be here.
0: So efforts to broker a month-long ceasefire took until the very last moment, ended with a deal for two months. Early reports were that there had been violations of the ceasefire on both sides, but that hasn't been confirmed, and indications are that the truce is holding, at least for now. Your thoughts, James Carey?
6: Yeah, from what I've seen, I've been kind of monitoring all day because, you know, these things usually happen in the first 24 hours. Um, I haven't seen any major reports of violations, which is interesting because there was always reports of Saudi violations. But um, I think the Saudis are and the Emiratis, too. I think they're being uh, embarrassed publicly a bit too much right now. And I think that there may be a reason for these talks to go forward or, or some talks to go forward coming out of the ceasefire because it's been looking real bad for the GCC involved in Yemen. And I, I, so far seeing that this is holding, I mean, maybe it has gotten to a point where they have to make a deal. The Saudis had that big formula one race kind of happening after, right after the attack on um, the Aramco facilities, uh, the UAE has been struck by Yemenis, So I think that these countries are kind of being embarrassed to a point where they, might have to abide by the ceasefire. But as as of right now, who knows what will happen, though?
2: I think there's two things. I agree. They're being embarrassed. But, you know, in reality, you know, if somebody's in a fight and they're getting punched kind of hard, sometimes they want to stop fighting because it hurts, you know? And I think that the reality is they're taking some nasty hits with these drones and these uh, missiles. And at some point, they have to think, you know what? If they... You know, the the uh, ability of 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 the Yemenis fighters to strike inside of Saudi Arabia and inside of the UAE is increasing. And they've got to think, man, they're going to shut down our our oil production or really bad things are going to happen just from a physical perspective. I think that has to be part of the equation. What do you what do you think, James?
6: Oh, yeah. And oil production. I mean, imagine it right now. If you got knocked out of oil production, you're missing a golden time in the market. You can't have that right now. And I think it also shows that the U.S. is really ineffective at protecting their allies. Um, You know, the Saudis are loaded up with Patriot missiles and the UAE has more planes than pilots. And I think that this has really been um, a show for the U.S. And maybe this has to do with the the Gulf Arabs not taking Biden's calls about Russia. But it shows that U.S. equipment and U.S. protection isn't enough uh, for These countries, especially in the face of new things like drone warfare, we've had Iran hit our drones that we thought they couldn't see. We've had Yemenis hit multiple sites within Saudi – well, within Saudi Arabia with their drones. And there's nothing that can be done to stop it. And, yeah, I think at this point, are you really going to risk your oil production um, as the market – you know, the global market is scrambling to figure out who's going to be the new – sort of power base of all the producing countries. And, you know, Saudi Arabia obviously wants to be on board with that. And they can't do so. They can't do so if they keep getting their oil fields
0: blown up. Are there any timing correlations between what's happening with this and the JCPOA negotiations? Because I've been reading that one of the final sticking points has to do with the designation uh, of the of the uh, Iran Guard as a terrorist organization, and the, I've been reading that one of the counter proposals could be that Iran will denounce activities in other regions. Many believe that being Yemen. So, is uh, could there be correlations between this, the uh, JCPOA deal? And basically the United States and the Saudis using this as a way out.
6: Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, the Saudis have to I don't think the Saudis are too concerned about U.S. opinion at this point. I think they may be looking for other, you know, they don't have to be. they are our supplier and I don't think they're too concerned about us now. But um, I think with Iran, you know, a big part of restarting the JCPOA. And this is what Trump complained about, too, was uh, a lot of people in the sort of foreign policy blob in the United States want groups like Hezbollah and the Houthis denounced by Iran. Um, I think that Iran probably won't do that unless there's some type of reason to make it look like they're backing off support. I don't think they can back off. They don't really support the Houthis like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think this is more symbolic for Saudi Arabia. I think they just want to be seen as someone who can be trusted to sort of take part in stability as everyone's like i said scrambling for new oil producers everyone you know with russia everything going on with russia people are scrambling to figure out who's going to be the new oil kingpin and saudi arabia definitely wants a piece of that you know
0: i'm glad you mentioned that about about iran's position because there are many who will say that the united states got out negotiated In the first round of the JCPOA. And when I heard that the U.S. was trying to tie the denouncing the Houthis and others or uh, Ansar Allah and and others, I said, well, that that sounds once again, the United States is going to get outmaneuvered here that basically Iran will be negotiating the sleeves off of its vest.
6: Yeah, I I don't think that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> this has been just a complaint that um the neocons sort of the foreign policy establishment has had is Iran's foreign influence and that they thought that was the bad the bad deal in the first negotiations. But Iran has no reason and there's no motivation for Iran to just suddenly not become this regional power. And honestly, if you open them back up to the world, why wouldn't they be an even bigger regional power? So I think the US is probably making a demand that just can't be met. I mean Could you really picture a world where Iran denounces Hezbollah or something like that? Because I couldn't, you know, and I Mm -hmm. think that the U.S. doesn't have much of a choice, though. The war with Russia and Ukraine has really put us in a poor negotiating position, and the Saudis probably see that as well. You know, they're not going to be able to call the shots as easy this time because we desperately need that oil.
2: You know, the another thing I think is this. <clears throat> I think that uh, because I have heard that the um UAE's meeting with um with uh Bashar al-Assad from Syria. I heard when that happened, you know, we heard from our sources that um he was there possibly to try to work on getting a deal with Yemen and lo and behold a few weeks later there's the deal with Yemen. I also think that um people looking that that the leaders in the in the uh, Middle East looking at this reordering economic economically of the world, are seeing some opportunities with China and India. you know, China's I think, buys 25 percent of the world's oil or something crazy like that. And so I think also maybe they want to get this war over. They want to get their house in order a little bit so they can look to take advantage. They may look at wanting to move their money out of the West if they're smart, and, and which I think they are. So what do you think about that, the reordering of the world causing these people to want to kind of get their get their house in order shall we say in in this war so they can get going i think so cuz i think you saw um you know the original plan when it thought it was thought the us was going to be in charge
6: of reconstructing syria nobody wanted to give any money you know nobody wanted to pitch in on that nobody wanted to actually do anything and now you have the uae dealing directly with syria you know this is a big step because i think people are seeing that you're seeing um a lot of countries you know mo- the majority of countries have as their major trading partner china now it's no longer the united states and that's going to continue and i think you saw the saudis talk about using um, not valuing oil trades in the dollar anymore with china and uh i think you see a lot of people doing that because there's this whole parallel economy being built up and there's no reason like i said the us can't provide you with security they can't provide you with the guaranteed stability you can't be sure they're not going to just undermine you or rip up a deal they make with you anyway. You know, There's really nothing to trust about the United States. And I think that people are seeing China – as I always say, China will talk to whoever answers the phone. It doesn't matter who's president, what they're doing. You know, They don't involve themselves in internal affairs. And that's one thing the Arab countries would sure love is a country that doesn't concern itself with their internal affairs.
0: What about the conditions of this uh, ceasefire? It's allowing 18 vessels carrying fuel into the port of Hodeida, two commercial flights a week from the Yemen capital to Jordan and Egypt. Uh, there are other uh, very, what seem to be very fa- favorable conditions to the uh, Yemenis. It seems that for that this is going to go on for two months. So really, what it's doing. It, it it's it's allowing yemen an opportunity to rest up to to eat up to get to 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 re uh, reorganize and if the saudis want to reconvene this fight in two months they'll be fighting a stronger enemy than they've been fighting up to this point
6: oh yeah a big part of this ceasefire i think was also the gcc needed resupply you know there was a lot of places blockaded by Allah. That had to be opened up, and that's part of the ceasefire, too. The Saudi mercs needed food, too. And the thing to watch now, I guess, would be is, do they allow, like, say, the visas for who flies into Yemen? Are those restricted to people who they don't want coming in, like certain journalists or something like that? There's been instances where food aid has been delivered in the past, which was all rotten and garbage. You know, um, the airport's been destroyed multiple times, so how many flights can— you know, and who's going to come in, which is really, it's dependent on outside forces. All this stuff is dependent on outside forces. And if they continue letting things like, but if they continue letting things like oil, you know, fuel oil, um, food and things like that, yeah, they're going to be facing a stronger, stronger Yemeni force, but they've been losing to the Yemenis ever since they started this war. So I think they know that. But the thing is, will they deliver this actual aid or will they continue to allow it through the two months? That'll have to be what's watched and the quality of what's delivered.
2: Do you think the U.S. may get hand, be hands off because of a little bit of embarrassment because they're going all out with, you know, the Russians are, you know, are doing horrible things and they're terrible in Ukraine and they're pros- uh, prosecuting a war. And that there are a number of people pointing to Yemen right now saying to the U.S., you know, you're sounding kind of hypocritical with um, facilitating a war against the poorest people in the Middle East Um by the richest people in the Middle East, and you're saying that, you know, anyway, your thoughts?
6: Yeah, definitely. I mean, people are not in the U.S. so much, but abroad, obviously, people notice this. People say, what's the difference between these U.S. bombs being dropped out of a Saudi jet or Russian bombs being dropped out of a Russian jet? I guess the difference is that the Russians made them themselves at least, right? (laughs) They didn't have to get them from us. Um, so, yeah, people are noticing the hypocrisy. And of course, there's hypocrisy everywhere. I mean, we do, these to, do this to all these countries. Ukraine itself is a lesson in hypocrisy. You know, we hype these people up to destroy themselves. And I feel sorry for them that that happened to them. But that's, you know, the U.S.'s project is pretty much exposed everywhere across the globe at this point, especially under Trump and then now Biden. You know, it's been a really incompetent empire the last couple of years.
0: We have just about a minute and a half left. Do you think as a result of this ceasefire that international pressure will increase on the United States and increase on the Saudis uh, and the Emiratis To So we go from a two-month to a six-month ceasefire and then, you know, we, we finally find a way out of this thing?
6: I, I don't know. I can't ever, you know, it's hard to be sure of that with the Saudis. It's hard to say it'll hold. Um, But if there is involvement with the JCPOA in Iran, there's probably a chance that, you know, it could go farther because now if this involves Iran and getting oil to Europe, you know, there's going to be big American allies who have something to say all of a sudden. So if it spreads, you know, if the effects of this spread far enough and if they're targeting the right people, if they're for the right people, um, yeah, maybe you could see some condemnation or at least some criticism from european allies and things like that and there could be a turnaround it's just will the saudis hold it and or will the saudis think that they can find a new supplier for their war and that's another thing we have to shut off the faucet of weapons to them and i don't know if that ever happens because that's our main export
0: you're right about that james carey as always thank you so much for your time we really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back
6: All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New Arab reports, Iran says agreement in Vienna nuclear talks close. Uh, Their foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdolalian, said on Sunday an agreement is close in paused negotiations to restore the 2015 nuclear deal between Tehran and world powers, What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and foreign international security analyst in Washington, D.C., author of many books, including Volatile State, Iran in the Nuclear Age, and he's the host of of a geopolitics and conflict show on Y.T., Dr. David Walalu, as always, thanks for joining us.
7: Good to be with you
0: guys. We are close to an agreement in the negotiations, Amir Abdullalian said during a phone conversation with U.N. Security General Antonio Gutierrez, according to a statement by the ministry. We have passed on our proposals on the remaining issues to the American side through the EU senior negotiator, and now the ball is in the U.S. court. Dr. Walalu, what say you about these latest apparent developments.
7: Well, uh, I, am not, uh, I am not surprised at the statements. I've been hearing this for quite a while. And I've been watching, by the way, the negotiations for, for quite a while. It's been a year almost since uh, they start the negotiations. They almost get into certain phases where they're going to say, yeah, we are so close on both ends. Because remember, this is not just for uh, the Iran by itself. It's also for domestic consumption in Iran and in the United States. So yeah, of course, they're gonna say, well, we're getting closer to uh, uh, resolving the deal or, or, or closing the deal, that is. However, Washington, <laughs> Washington is dragging its feet on really reaching a conclusion to this. Why? Because we, in the United States, imposing additional requirements, shall we say, to the deal. And this is why the, the, the Iranians kind of like, okay, where do we go from here? Because there is no clear, uh, uh, sight on, 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 on end per se to reach the conclusion of these negotiations and move to the next phase, whatever that phase is. So both parties are pulling from each side for domestic reasons, uh, uh only.
2: You know, and I'm re- I've been reading, you know, constantly looking on Twitter, constantly um, looking at this, and I see the bottom line is Iran is saying they will not um, return to Vienna again, only to finalize the deal, and they're saying that they will never get a- give in to US's, the U.S.'s excessive de- demands. You know, we've been reading for months that they're days away, hours away from a deal. It seems to me, based on the pressures from the neocons inside of the Biden team, I I don't see how they can ever really get a deal.
7: Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland. I mean, actually, the Iranian foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdelhanian, a creative the U.S. Uh, on, on, on the latest sanctions, because how can you impose sanctions and at the same time you want to negotiate something? That just doesn't make sense. It's the same thing we've seen with the Ukraine uh, crisis. You know, it's the same thing we are now witnessing regarding uh, China. That the United States is saying the same. It just doesn't work that way. And the U.S. has no intentions of resolving this issue. Otherwise, they would have agreed to the, the, the clauses of the original deal, deal that, was, that was signed and agreed upon back in 2015 and move forward. Of course, now Iran has another now uh, saying, if the U.S. is going to play this tricks, we're going to play our own. And one of the requirements right now is to request the removal of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, known as IRGC from their list of foreign terrorist organizations. So it becomes one of those, hey, the U.S., if you want to solve the issue, here is
0: one. Then we'll talk. Is the IRGC issue a new issue, or is it just something that has been on the table for a while, unable to be resolved, and it's now getting uh, getting more attention?
7: It's getting more attention. Basically, that's what it is, because what, gonna, what basically is doing to the American side is that Iran put the United States, basically put President, uh, President Biden, in a very, very delicate, awkward political position here domestically at home. Because the question is going to become now uh, the challenge with a renewal of a nuclear deal. Is there a political cost of securing the deal higher than the cost of letting it die? This is where the problem is going to be, mm-hmm. because... Any deal is going to have to go, as you know, it has to go through the Senate, in our Senate. And that's another political fiasco altogether, because they're going to say, no, we are not going to agree to that. Well, If they're going to say no, Iran's going to do what Iran's going to do. He's going to, going to decide, maybe it is time for us to get away from the NPT and not uh, 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 sort of remove ourselves from the Non-Proliferation Treaty Agreement all together, which means what? It means basically kicking out all the inspectors, okay? And Iran can enrich uranium at any level, it's one. That is where the danger is.
2: The other thing I, I was thinking about is the issue for Iran had been, you know, its ability to do business on the international market. Now that we see a reorder, now that, you know, from my understanding is Iran's that that uh, people need oil and Iran is selling a lot of oil now and it's getting close to or it may already be up to its pre-sanctions level of oil sales. Iran doesn't need the deal as bad as it used to need it. And it, if it's looking forward at some point, it won't need it at all. Your thoughts?
7: Well, you're absolutely correct, because the dynamics on the global stage have changed. Uh, This is the miscalculations of the West, thinking that, well, we're going to sanction Russia and everything's going to be a hunky-dory. No, it's not. Now, it's backfiring on the West. As a matter of fact, it was a conversation inside Europe now. They want to have some sort of a deal where they can get gas from Iran. Whoever thought? No, let alone that now prices of energy in Germany are skyrocketing beyond. Uh, it's not. It's not getting reported here in the U.S. Of course, but but the big picture into all this that now President Biden found himself because they cornered themselves both the Iranians and the Americans, but mainly the Americans, because what Iran's going to end up doing is is saying, well, sure, you don't want to reach a deal. We are not party to the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty Agreement. And we're going to just move whatever we want to do, because the United States knows that if it takes the issue to the U.N. Security Council, Russia is going to veto that. Mm. So it's a loose good for the Americans one way or another.
0: How does the uh, attempted coup in Pakistan, how does the attempted coup in Pakistan factor in to the longer-term perspective, not only of countries like Iran, but of of U.S. allies as well?
7: Well, that one has a a much more geopolitical application to it, Uh, security aspects of it, of course, but also you have to tie that one to China's BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. Why? Because Pakistan is a signatory to the BRI with China. Of course, China invested over almost $60 billion in, in rebuilding Baluchistan right now. And it's, it's a port city. It is very, very big, and it's getting very developed. As a matter of fact, uh, some, some research that I did on that found out that the port in Baluchistan would soon challenge the one in Dubai for the value of the commodities transiting through there. So what happened basically with, the, with Pakistan is that the, uh, the U.S. was getting involved into some aspects of this through the uh, what his name is, Donald Liu. He's the U.S. Mm-hmm. Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia Affairs. Basically, when he stated that, well, the implications on Pakistan will be very, very serious if, Imran Khan is not ousted. You don't say something like this. That's that's meddling into internal affairs of another country. And basically yesterday, the parliament in Pakistan rejected the no vote, uh, no confidence vote on Imran, which means he's still in his possession. But he has to call now new elections, which will be happening within the next 90 days. So basically, the the U.S. wants to punish Pakistan for meeting with Russia.
2: That's the bottom line. In the same way that we see, um, you know, Vladimir Putin's numbers are up to 83 percent now. When a country feels attacked, they tend to, you know, circle the wagons around the leader. I know Imran Khan did have some issues with support in Iran, but I mean, excuse me, in Pakistan. But now I'm seeing these gigantic crowds come out. Do you think the fact that it's getting out that the U.S. attempted to coup the government is going to— caused the people of Pakistan to, prob- to likely um, give him more support than they would have had that not happened?
7: I will go with that assertion. Uh, bro, I do see that possibility they're going to vote him in back into the office because, remember, Pakistan history, when you look at it, since their own independence, uh, it has always no prime minister. No prime minister in Pakistan has served the five-year term uh, consecutively, You know, they always had these issues with, especially with the military, with the ISI and, and with the militants. Remember, the militants, we funded the militants in Balochistan. Uh, the whole idea of Afghanistan, it was us going through during the Russian invasion of uh, Afghanistan back then. Who supported all this? It was us through. So we do understand the consequences of toppling uh, or destabilizing a regime in Pakistan, it's not going to be pretty. i tell you this from experience as one who spent time on the ground in that part of the world. So we better think twice about embarking on this regime change.
0: When you say it's not going to be pretty, how will that manifest itself?
7: How will it manifest is looking over the 9-11. We basically could be seeing something similar to that because... Uh, remember, the the Taliban, where are the headquarters? They're not headquarters in Afghanistan. They are headquarters mm. in Pakistan. Pakistan.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah. I mean, we will. it will become a nightmare because it, it just, this is what happen when you get, a, you, you know, financing and training the, the militants that you want to unleash them on a Pakistan. It's, it's just not going to work. It's not pretty. And why? Because we got upset that Imran Khan, met with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin about three four weeks four, four or more, almost five weeks ago or six weeks ago. Uh, he went to Moscow and met with them, and he refused to sanction Russia as the United States asked him to do so. He said, no, I won't. It's because he, Imran Khan is seeing the changes, the geopolitical dynamics that's taking place in Southeast Asia. And this is why India rejected the U.S. request for sanctioning Russia. And I said, no way. What are you talking about? Because you see, in the, as a matter of fact, I am, I'll go as far as saying this. The Ukraine crisis, okay, the push that we did towards that, it's now, it's opening the gates for the new global order. We precipitated the global order in which the United States is not going to play a role in it. It's going to be centered in the East and India and the likes of Pakistan. They don't want to be left behind.
0: Dr. David Walalu. as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Anytime. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News. The target is China. The Pentagon's current strategy document clearly identifies enemy number one And it's not Russia. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back.
9: Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be back.
0: So the Pentagon has produced its latest national defense strategy, the NDS, a report made every four years to provide the public and the government with a broad overview of the U.S. war machine's planning, posturing, developments, and areas of focus. One might assume with all the aggressive brinksmanship between Moscow and the U.S. this year that Russia would feature as enemy number one, but that would be an incorrect assumption. The Defense Department reserves that slot for the same nation that's occupied it for many years now, China. And I think there is a RAN study that said that Russia is the way through ch- through to China. George Ku.
9: Well, I guess one way to look at it is that they've been working on this report on China for so long that um, they didn't really have time to change it and put Russia in.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
9: you know, bureaucrats move slowly, right? So it it could be a time lag. Or secondly, it could simply be that they expect Russia to be um, a less important foe, and not, Scary enough to justify the budget that they're looking at, the budget they want to invest in the arms and the weapons and, and everything else, and uh, and in some way, I suppose Russia is sort of old hat, and China is much more of a fresh fresh meat for the for the war in in the, in Washington and in the Pentagon. Um, as, as the article, as you guys suggested, there isn't anything new there. Um, they try to try to demonize China as much as they can in order to justify justify calling them as the enemy number one, despite the fact that China hasn't done anything to provoke them. So... Um, I guess that's that's the way it is that's the way it stands right now.
0: In fact, let me just quickly let me let me just quickly add to to your point one of the things that gets overlooked by many in this country is that in a lot of, and we say this on the show all the time, in a lot of areas, 5G, for example, China reached out to the United States asking to help in the development to work cooperatively in the development of that technology, and the United States turned China down. And now, as a result of that, U.S. is getting its iron parts kicked on the technology side.
9: Yeah, and um, I think... Initially, when they turned China down, they had naturally and automatically assumed that the American technology was going to be superior, and the Chinese were just trying to steal something and and take something that doesn't belong to them and um and such um arrogance and presumption um is is really part of their their you know the the situation they're now in, which is that they are behind in so many areas because of the the the, the uh, I guess the hubris that they've been working in.
2: You know, uh, the other thing is the the U.S. I think I think things are changing or going to be changing for the U.S. over the next year or so. You know, their plan, I want to get your thoughts. I've mentioned this before. Obviously, their plan was, okay. we've got to go get China or go to war with China, whatever, intimidate China. And at some point, it appears they thought, well, we better take Russia down first. And that ain't going so well. And they were thinking like the old days back in World War II where country A goes to war with country B and then there's a winner or a loser and then you move on to country C. However, with the globalist economy, now countries are so economically tied together that when you go after a big country, you basically destroy the economy of a lot of your allies and maybe even our own and their allies. I just think the U.S. was planning on taking NATO and saying NATO is ours. It is just a tool of ours. Shut up, NATO. Come with us. We're going to finish off Russia. Then when we're done with that, you're going to come with us and we're going to go over and confront China. And NATO is going to be a ragtag pile of trash when they get finished with it and is not going to have much of a taste for going after anybody after this. Your thoughts?
9: Yeah, well, uh, already you can see that NATO is is not willing to risk any of their own boots in Ukraine. They are encouraging Ukraine to fight for as long as they can, down to the last Ukrainian. Um, so that's that's a proven uh, uh, demonstration. I think the other thing that the U.S. is miscalculating, and I think this is going to be a very serious blowback, as as I just wrote in the uh, Asia Times, that which is that if you can unilaterally confiscate Russian foreign international reserve deposit in the U.S., you can confiscate gold that's in the in the in in the vaults of U.S. in New York or and in London, um, and and uh, and just boot Russia off the swift payment system, everybody else in the world are going to be saying to themselves, My God, you know, here we are. We've been trusting the U.S. to be a responsible, honorable fiduciary, and they can just confiscate everything and anything he owns on the whim. How can we do that? How can we any longer put our money on the dollar and put the dollar in the U.S.? And this is really going to come back and kick us in the butt because... As soon as the people begin to realize the dollar isn't worth the paper it's printed on they're they're not they're going to go somewhere else, including the fact that they will put their money on ruble because rub because Putin has already said you know five thousand ruble is worth one gram of gold, so there's a real asset tied to it and and that's a consequence i don't i didn't hear too many people talking about it, but that is a very serious consequence coming down the pike. Uh,
0: Not that I expect an answer, but I just 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 came to mind when you talked about tying the ruble to a gram of gold. Another commodity, I think these are commodities that Russia holds in vast reserve are diamonds. And so I wonder I wonder if if diamonds will find their way onto the market. Responsible statecraft has a piece. New president will bring South Korea deeper into U.S. embrace. The conservative Yoon Suk Yeol will take a harder line on North Korea and China. This might be harder and more dangerous than it sounds. Your thoughts, George Koo?
9: Well, it's not. It's potentially uh, a, a, a niction point because of the friction between North and South Korea, and I think. Fairly recently, the North Koreans fired off a, a, another big uh, intercontinental missile, and I think that's based on what they're learning from Ukraine, which is that you know if you don't show your uh, if you don't show that you've got something on, uh, in your sleeve, the West is going to stop paying attention to you, and that's the the fact that the South Koreans have completely changed their attitude towards the North. Not willing to get along, much more adversarial. That's that will that could be a spark. Um, China is unlikely to to be an active particip- participant because they're not interested in setting up the spark between North and South, or between North Korea and the rest of the uh, the West. But um, how South Korea is going to Find itself getting along. China is going to be a very, very strange challenge because on the one hand, the South Korean president is being very aggressively anti-China. On the other hand, South Korea economy depends much more on China China, trade with China than they are with uh, the United States.
2: You know, that was my thoughts. I remember when the U.S. put the uh, Thod system in China, and, I mean, excuse me, in, in uh, South Korea, and China did some devastating economic moves. Um, my understanding is China, South Korea's economy is heavily integrated with China and that they really have to be careful because China could pretty much wipe their economy out in, you know, one fell swoop.
9: Yeah, and and the other thing, of course, is that, A lot of the Koreans, young Koreans, are in China, either working in China for Korean companies, working in China for Chinese companies, studying Chinese, going to Chinese universities. In that sense, they're very much like what's happening with people from Taiwan. The best, best and brightest are also on the mainland China. They are integrated, and how to uh de integrate is probably not gonna be of interest to the uh to the newly elected South Korean president. Furthermore, he won by a very, very thin margin. So he doesn't have a mandate, um, other than making noises about how he's very pro US. And being pro of US, strangely enough, is really putting him in a minority. Among what, forty some countries in Asia There's only three that sign on to the U.S. sanction on Russia. South Korea, Japan, and um, one other that slips my mind. Um, It's it's a minority in terms of the number of countries. Most of them have declined to sign on just because they want to get along with China. They don't want to piss off the U.S. for sure. But um, but but they're not obliged to toe the line and and be part of the sanction.
0: We've got about three minutes. Uh, China, Solomon Islands signed deal on security cooperation framework. China and the Solomon Islands have signed a deal on a security cooperation framework. The Chinese embassy in the Solomon Islands announced it last Thursday. The cooperation between the countries is not directed at any third party and can complement regional structures and other countries the embassy said Uh, how significant is this
9: well i think it's a uh from from a from a military point of view it is important because it gives china a base beyond the first island chain Mm -hmm. that the u.s has been um, promoting and australia has been part of the uh, idea that you surround china with the first island chain and solomon of course is quite a ways beyond the First Island chain. Um, I think from the Solomon Islands point of view, they see China to be much more a potential source of assistance, technical assistance, investment assistance, the Belt and Road type of projects that China can uh, can render, Uh, whereas I, I think Solomon Island is much closer to Australia, but what Australia is offering is, uh, by God, we're going to invade and, and do a regime change for what you're trying to do with China. So that's where I think this is where the situation is right now at Solomon Island. It's still a developing situation, and uh, I will have to wait and see. Because, again, the Solomon Island um, of government, the, the there's two factions, and, and they sort of alternate in terms of, you know, coming into power. The mm-hmm. previous one was the one that had a relationship with Taiwan and this one is gonna have a relationship with PRC. Um I don't I don't know if they will ever go back to having a relationship with Taiwan once they see the positive benefits of working with China. Okay. But um it's a hot spot.
0: George Ku, as always, thank you so much for your time and we look forward to having you back.
9: Thank you very much.
0: Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the critical hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a very interesting piece in Black Agenda Report entitled Ukraine, the Afghanistan model for the consolidation of the global white supremacist movement. The Biden administration is dusting off the same playbook that gave arms and money to jihadists in Afghanistan and Syria. Now, the beneficiaries of American foreign policy largesse are white supremacists from around the world who've made their way to Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and editor, and contributing columnist for Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee for the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based Nas- United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee of the Black is Back Coalition. And he's the author of this piece. John Mubaraka, as always, sir. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, you write, Hillary Clinton declared during a February 28th 2022 interview with MSNBC that the model for Ukraine should be Afghanistan, where the U.S. armed the Afghan Mujahideen as part of the U.S. strategy to create a Vietnamese quagmire for Clinton and some elements of the foreign policy community. It is of little concern that the training and real world military experience and political networking that resulted from bringing radical right wing Islamists together created Al Qaeda, the Taliban and later ISIS. Two things. One, how do you see that playbook manifesting itself in Ukraine? And also, do you see them blowing the dust off of Hillary Clinton and resurrecting her as an analyst on this issue, laying the groundwork for a possible Hillary Clinton 2024 run for president? Hmm. <laughs>
10: Well, first, of all, the most important part of that is the, the, the cynicism involved in what Hillary Clinton actually said. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, that uh, bringing those uh, jihadist elements together back in the 1980s uh, with the objective of bogging down the Soviet Union uh, laid the foundation for the network or al-Qaeda. Uh, and the al-Qaeda network uh, was a network that could have would have never been organized uh, uh, on its own uh, and became a threat to uh, nations and peoples across the planet. Now, they are willing to deal with the consequences of networking of far-right uh, again in Ukraine. But this time, the far-right and neo-Nazi elements that they are prepared to support and we're supporting uh, since 2014, are the most violent elements of the international white supremacist movement. Now, for those of us who are concerned about human rights, uh, those of us who are concerned about issues around racial justice, who are concerned about about peace, uh, and who uh, understand and read history, the dusting off of this playbook um, and, and utilizing it for uh, uh, Ukraine uh, represents, as I said in the article, a uh, should represent an existential threat, because if, if they're going to arm and provide training to these white supremacist groups from across the planet, including, of course, the U.S., then the uh, issue of the growing violence and uh, aggressiveness of the white supremacist movement in the U.S. that they pretend to be concerned with, is only going to grow in its ability to uh, to create havoc. And of course, who would be the communities in the crosshairs of this white supremacist violence? So, you know, we, we have to make sure, we make the argument in the article, that we have to make sure not to allow Ourselves to be uh, uh, suckered into supporting policies that can have these long term detrimental impacts, not only on
2: our communities and most colonized
10: people, but for the entire
2: world. You know, Ajamu. The other thing looking at this, and that is, you know, when you look at this, this is about power. This is about, you know, the U.S. is aiming at Russia and ultimately they see China's economic threat as a major threat. And so this is really about power and money. And as you say, you know, these Nazis and white supremacists are are extremely dangerous, which is precisely why they're using them. You know, it's they're they're going to get their hands on a mad dog and and, and let the mad dog loose in someone else's house. But uh, um, I, I think ultimately when this happens, eventually what we're looking at, not just the U.S., they're arming these people. They're going to get loose. They're going to, when this is over, be wandering around Europe with some of the most dangerous weapons with anti-shoulder-carried, anti-aircraft weapons and anti-tank weapons that they are going to do, I mean, recklessly, they, they're going to do— well, to Europe in, as far as destabilization, what they did to the Middle East. And, and these are supposed to be their allies. Your thoughts? But, you know,
10: uh, Garland, that, that sort of letting loose has already happened. Uh, since 2014, there have been uh, dozens of, of neo-Nazi types of white supremacists that have traveled to Ukraine. Ukraine became sort of the epic center, if you will, of the, of the militant white supremacist movement. In fact, uh, as I talk about in the article, the FBI and other intelligence agencies in the U.S. and across Europe uh, expressed some, some degree of concern about that. They, 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 uh, the FBI specifically talked about uh, the evidence they had of the growing uh, coordination and communication between uh, violent white supremacist groups in the U.S. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the Ukraine. And so they've been traveling to the Ukraine for now years and getting uh, uh, military training, ideological uh, support, uh, and they're already a loose in various communities and nations, including here uh, in the US. So that, that journey's out the bottle already. And so, and, and so the, we have less of a threat with the new uh, sort of uh, white supremacist, jihadist. Uh, that uh, uh, President Z- Z- Zelensky uh, encouraged to come to uh, Ukraine, because uh, many of those folks have basically uh, been either been blown away or have now uh, left the country. So we're less concerned with them than those thousands. Uh, some people have, uh, have uh, argued uh, uh, 17 to 20,000 people have, who have received training in Ukraine who are already let loose, if you will, Across Europe and, and North America,
0: I'd like to get your take on the second part of my question about Hillary Clinton, because as I over the years, you know, pay attention to who comes up on the media when and why, and to see her now pop up, her face pop up, and she's now providing analysis here. I wonder if a uh, predicate or the groundwork is being laid to make her more visible. And a possible nominee and run run at the twenty twenty four. But and then also to the point of your piece, where's black leadership in calling this issue out? I mean, if we have the Red Cross posting on its on its uh, website that African-Americans who go and pro- want to provide support have to worry about the racist cries and claims and and issues from Ukrainians. And the analysis that you've provided, I would say that the uh, CBC is compic- conspicuously silent here. Hmm.
10: Right, and they are. And and not only do um, African Americans have to be have to be uh, careful if they do decide to uh, to go to Eastern Europe. There's been reports that have said that these this open arm uh, welcome of Ukrainian refugees to the U.S. Uh, that that people have to be also concerned with some of the attitudes of mm-hmm. some of those individuals who maybe come to the country. On the the question of, of 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 Hillary Clinton, look, you know, the the Democratic Party's in crisis, in my opinion. It's quite clear that uh, that the uh, a presidency of of Joe Biden is in trouble, even with this wag the dog uh, uh, war. Uh, they have no clear. Uh, messaging because they have no clear agenda besides just serving the interests of, of big uh, of, of international capital uh, and the the economic crisis that, that has now emerged as a consequence of this war the, the rising fuel costs and food uh, on top of the inflation um, you know it, it is a situation where basically we are going to see significant inroads being made by the Republicans as they sharpen their messaging. Uh, even though that messaging is still quite uh, reactionary, uh, and is opening up the field for a real challenge in 2024 for Joe Biden. I don't think anybody is going to really, really believe that Joe Biden's going to attempt to try to run again. Uh, and if he did, it would be mainly just as a caretaker uh, presidency. Uh, would Hillary Clinton be a viable candidate? Well, no, it remains to be seen within the context of the, of the Democratic Party. I suspect not. I think there's enough forces that will be uh, very, very uh, there'll be an opposition to uh, Clinton It's going to be up in the air. I would say uh, look at uh, people like Ro Conant uh, as uh, the, the, the Indian Obama, if you will, uh, that might be a more viable um, uh, alternative. To uh, to Biden than than Hillary Clinton. I think Hillary Clinton's days as a presidential candidate is probably really over.
0: Just real quick, I agree with you, but that doesn't mean that Hillary sees it that way. <laughs> and 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 that's and that's really my my point was uh, not was not that the DNC is promoting her, but also remember Bill Clinton has now restarted the Clinton uh, initiative. initiative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just I. Anyway, go ahead. Uh,
2: the last thing is uh, I'd I like to ask you about. It, and that is the other thing is this. The U.S. is doing this, um, t- you know, very self-defeating sanctions program. And the people that it appears are going to suffer the most are the black and brown people in the developmental parts of the world. And even here in the U.S., you know, people of color are very much overrepresented in the um, more, you know, in the in the in the working poor and the poor uh, um, uh, demographics. Your thoughts? Exactly.
10: I mean, the the sanctions uh, uh, on Russia have actually ended up being sanctions placed on the working classes in the West. Uh, And when you look at what's happening in the U.S., uh, those sanctions are going to bite significant and already biting significantly uh, within the black and brown communities. Uh, You know, people are are transport dependent. They have to have cars to get around uh, to do their daily business. Uh, the gas prices are are, are, are going uh, through the roof. Uh, you have the uh, rising food costs. Uh, I mean, people are barely able to make it. So, the political connections are being made uh, that people are beginning to understand that they are they are the ones paying the cost of these wars uh, abroad. Uh, and when they start making those connections, and they stick. Uh, we we see we're going to see the possibility of some real serious social upheaval as a consequence, because people are not going to just suffer, continue to suffer
0: in silence. And we have just about a minute left. And not only is that a domestic U.S. domestic issue, but we're now starting to see inflation close to eight percent in Germany and in other European countries. And with their parliamentary systems that can be uh, uh, dissolved with a day's notice, a vote of no confidence, uh, I think that there are a number of European countries that are going to have to seriously question how far down this rabbit hole do they follow Joe Biden?
10: Exactly. We see that even in in France, for example, uh, uh, Maria Le Pen, who was really basically written off, is now climbing in, in numbers. So there's social and political upheaval across the Western world as the consequence of this fumbling, stumbling, Uh, policy by the Biden administration that has resulted in this unnecessary conflict uh, in Russia and in in Ukraine, primarily because they want to disconnect Russia from the European market. It is a failed uh, 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 policy, uh, and the consequences for the entire planet are are really um, going to be uh, detrimental and with us for for
0: many years to come. Ajamu Baraka, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. All right, brothers. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.